Hi, I'm Sage and welcome to my podcast. Here I will chat with you about my adventures in romance and non-monogamy and all of existence really, starting from my strict fundamentalist Christian childhood all the way through to where I am today, practicing relationship anarchy and still trying to figure life out bit by bit. Here you can expect frank discussions about religion, about trauma, about monogamy and of course about sex. I hope you'll have fun, I hope you'll find it interesting and most of all I hope you'll join the conversation. Hello friends, this is Sage coming to you from a cottage in the woods. And that is a sentence that I have wanted to say my entire life. (laughs) Here is an assortment of sounds you might hear throughout the course of this episode. One, as always, vote, snoring in the background. Two, the sounds of a crackling fire right behind me. Mice scurrying in the walls. Me screaming as I see a spider. And the tin roof doing weird cracks and groans and moans as it expands and contracts. It just does strange things. It's been a very long while since last we spoke, and I'm honestly quite surprised about that. I had so many ideas fresh off the joy from my previous episode. I was so full of ideas. I thought I'd immediately launch the next one. had lots of topics planned. But then... The thing was that life simply said no. Be really still. (laughs) That's been a theme, I'm sure you've noticed. So since last we spoke, I spent some time... I left the farm where I was volunteering. My time there was finished. And then I spent some time with friends in Nalspreit, up in Pumalanga province. And then with my aunt and cousins in Pretoria for two weeks during which time I was also freelancing, which took up most of my time. And then I undertook the drive down back to the Western Cape. And if you've been following me on Instagram, you know more or less what my travels have entailed, the places I've stopped, the beautiful spaces I've visited, the memories that brought back, the emotions that brought up. But I basically took a road trip down from Gauteng, Pumalanga, KwaZulu-Natal, Eastern Cape, and back in the Western Cape, in the Garden Route specifically. To those of you who aren't South Africans who are listening, the Garden Route is somewhere you should visit. (laughs) It has the biggest swath of indigenous forest in our country. Oh, it's just... It's just really beautiful. It has ocean and forest and birds and monkeys and very good weather. And I was fortunate enough to be offered a cottage here in exchange for gradually fixing it up, painting the walls, sanding the floors. And this cottage is on a little farm in the forest. And... Since arriving here almost three weeks ago, I have not been able to do much. 
Because what felt much more urgent than doing anything was to sit and stare and look at the luris, also known as nice naturikos, that come visit me twice, thrice a day. Dark, iridescent green, and then when they lift their feathers, it's bright red underneath. And they sit here on the railings, cocking their heads at me, making little sounds, until I finally bring them grapes or strawberries, which they then eat, and then they just fly off again. And in the mornings, monkeys play on the roof. And as I said, there are mice or some or other scurrying rodents living in the walls. And, and there are spiders, about which I'll tell you more in a while. And I have just been going for long walks in the forest, taking endless pictures of trees, me with a tree, pictures of my dog with the trees, pictures of the trees by themselves. And it's always it's always a big disappointment. The photos never turn out the way I want them to, but it's just it's just so alive. And I feel so alive and I think it has in large part to do with the fact that this year I've been spending so much time in forests. <sighs> First the forest up in Pumalanga, in the mountains where I was, and now the forest here. And every forest is different, but the thing that just the the thing that permeates it all is this the sense of complex, interwoven, intelligent aliveness to it. You walk through the forest and you see how the trees interact with each other to such an extent that you can't figure out which leaves belong to which tree? I walk with a, with a tree book in my hand, really making a concerted effort to start knowing and identifying trees. And then I stop at a specific tree. Many of them are too high for me to be able to really pick any leaves. It just makes a canopy overhead, meters high above overhead. But every now and again, I find a tree with leaves that hang down low enough that I can actually pick the leaves. And then I turn to the tree book and try and identify the tree and then quickly realize that the leaves I picked do not actually belong to the tree that they seem to be hanging from. They belong to a tree next to it or a tree that is sort of entangled with it. And there's lichen and there are ferns and everywhere cobwebs and mosquitoes and tree frogs. Oh my God, the tree frogs, tiny little chirruping tree frogs that come visit me in the mornings and then when they get a fright, boop, hop back into the trees. And it's just such a coherent aliveness. And it's just been seeping into me. Anyway, before we start with this episode in earnest, let me tell you about my new podcast idea that I had. If you've been following me on Instagram, again, you would have seen this. It's this idea, and I mentioned it before, about storytelling, about wanting to create a platform where emergent, new, less new, unpublished, published, self-published, shy, confident writers can come together and tell their stories. And the idea is that people send me their long form somewhere between a thousand and seven thousand words 
about the thing that makes them excited to write about, whether that's a mystery story or a travel story, whether it's fiction, non-fiction, and I read it because I just I just love reading and I love reading stories and I want to create a place where stories can be told and stories can be shared. So there's more information about that on my website, but if you'd like to participate, I want to launch that podcast whenever I have enough stories to get it going and in the meantime I'm writing a few of my own stories and I I will be contributing those as well so let's see how that goes I don't know when that project will launch what form it'll take yet but if this speaks to you if you have if you have a few stories served as word documents unread and unseen on your laptop or if you've scribbled something and you've only shown it to your best friend and you've never mustered up the courage to share it with someone else send it why not and then we create a storytelling hub then the other thing I wanted to talk about is my patreon first of all I would like to extend so much deep gratitude to my second patreon supporter who joined up the other day my friend Yanni (laughs) who is a very close friend, has been a very close friend for a very long time, is basically my dog's godfather. And we've been through a lot together. We've had significant ups and downs. And I cried a little bit when I saw that he joined up and become a Patreon. So I now have a full two Patreon supporters. And it's so tiny, but it's so significant to me. So to Yanni and to Fritz, my two supporters, so much love to you both. And it's interesting that both of my Patreon supporters are people that I know in real life, that I'm close to in real life. And initially, that made me a bit uncomfortable. It felt like, ooh, you know, my friends are supporting me on Patreon. It's like a charity support, like... They know me, they care about me, and therefore they're sort of making a contribution. And that sort of makes me uncomfortable in a way that I would not be uncomfortable if it was strangers who support me on Patreon just based on the fact that they enjoy my podcast. But then I realized this is internalized capitalism too. I don't want to receive money from my friends because it feels like quote-unquote charity, which it would not if it were from strangers. But actually, that's a lot of steaming bullshit because actually that is the world I want to live in where I have, where I'm part of a close-knit community, where I have a strong and vibrant circle of friends where we all contribute what we can as we can and take what we need as we need it and we share our talents and we share our time and we share our resources, not necessarily in equal measures, but rather as is needed you know you give your thing I give my thing and if my thing is giving a podcast and your thing is giving five dollars a month then why does this make me uncomfortable and yeah the only explanation I could come up with is internalized capitalism (laughs) I don't even know if that's a concept if that's a term but now it is anyway if you would like to support me on patreon I'd love to have you There are three tiers, $5, $10, and $20. And I actually recently Googled how much $5 is in rands. In rands, it is 73 rands. So 
at the lowest possible tier to support me on Patreon, you would be contributing 73 rands if you are from South Africa, which is hopefully affordable. And if it's not, well, you don't have to be a Patreon. We will not be less friends. We will not be less whatever we currently are. I want to keep making this podcast whether or not I receive financial support for it, because I like it. And in fact, I never want to make the podcast to get money. I never want it to become a source of stress instead of a source of joy. I want to make it from a place of wanting to have these conversations rather than, ooh, my Patreons are waiting on me, I need to release another episode. So whatever the case might be, I'd love to have you though. If you'd like to support me on Patreon, that would be wonderful. Or else, give me a follow on Instagram, send me a message, send me a suggestion, send me your story. I've also changed the submission guidelines for this podcast on my website. You can see that. I'll link it below. Um, I want to make it official that I welcome any and all stories for this podcast as well. That entails and includes relationship stories, life change stories, stories of joy, stories of hope, questions you have that aren't coherent stories, things you're wondering about that aren't necessarily coherent, whatever it is that you want to share, whether it's about life stuff or love stuff, send it to me in a voice note, in a message, and I'll feature it on my podcast. As always, I want this to be a space where we all contribute where it's not just me talking to you, but you talking back. And I have received so many beautiful messages from so many of you, and it's just been like my favorite thing ever, basically. Anyway, back to the topic at hand, heartbreak. I've been, I've been thinking about heartbreak for the past few months. I've been really being with heartbreak over the past few months. And... I wanted to make an episode about breakups, which is coming soon. But as I was planning this episode about breakups and soliciting stories, I realized that I wanted to talk about a recent experience I've had with heartbreak itself, not with the mechanics and the structure of breakups and what they look like and what we can learn from them, but from the felt experience of one's heart aching when a relationship ends. And I want to say that, of course, the end of a relationship is not the only form of, bre- of heartbreak we can experience. Heartbreak comes in, in many forms. And I want to acknowledge the real and tremendous pain of, for instance, having somebody you love die. But I have been thinking about heartbreak recently in the form of breakups. And I think what, what makes breakups so interesting is that this is a form of heartbreak that is universally experienced. We've all <laughs> been through it. And so in a strange way, breakups can be a portal for us to the powerful gifts of heartbreak. While, of course, most of us will lose loved ones in our lives, breakups are much more commonplace. Which doesn't mean that they're not that they're not painful. Like I feel like breakups are really under recognized in society. 
especially if it's not the end of a marriage, but simply the end of a relationship that wasn't officially recognized. Last year and at the beginning of this year, when I went through what I think was perhaps the most significant relationship end of my life, it felt as if the world had come to an end. Like there was no cell in my body that didn't feel changed. And it was almost strange interacting with life and seeing how everything was just continuing. And I encountered a lot of self-judgment at my own agony. I'd be like, why am I this devastated? This is something that everybody goes through. Most people go through it many times. Like, it feels like I should be able to put in sick leave. It feels like I should be able to take a fucking sabbatical. But there are no... There's no recognition. Like, if you tell someone you went through a breakup, people are like, oh, I'm sorry. And then, you know, the conversation kind of moves on. And I'm like, wait, no, you don't get it. Like, I am not the same person I was. Everything is different now. I live in a post-this-relationship life, if that makes sense. It feels like everything shifted. Anyway, those are just some random thoughts about that breakup. But as I was revisiting that now a few months later and thinking about the things that that changed for me and that, that came from this. I also decided to sit down and count how many breakups I have actually been through. And I have been through 14 breakups, <laughs> which is a big number. And I don't regret any of those. And I look back, there's just so much gratitude for each of those relationships and for each of those relationships ending specifically. And the, the gifts that came because of those endings, because of that pain, that brokenness. And so yes, I think that, that breakups are one way that we can all access a kind of existential pain that can serve as a sort of a catalyst into greater aliveness, into more fullness of being. And I realize that sounds very vague and also quite pat to say, oh, well, you know, heartbreak is a thing that will help you be more, be better, be more alive. And I don't think it always is. Of course, it depends on our response to it. And of course, it depends on many different things. And also, I don't want to glorify suffering so, th so I'm not saying, yay, heartbreak, yay, suffering. Let's take pride in how we can grit our teeth and get through difficult moments because the difficult moments will make us stronger. Not at all. I think strength is overrated. I think suffering sucks and is not something that should ever be glorified. So that's not really what I'm trying to get at. I'm trying to get at the fertility of brokenness, the fertility inherent in, in death. Because heartbreak is a death. It's the death of a dream. Really, that is what breaks the heart. So I was thinking about what it is exactly that happens when we go through a breakup. And as far as I can tell, what gets triggered for us when relationships end, specifically when we are broken up with, is usually rejection, abandonment, and betrayal. 
And all three of those things come down to, I am alone. The end of a relationship is the end of, and actually I don't want to call it the end of a relationship because more and more, and this is what my next episode will be about, more and more I don't think that relationships end so much as change and that even if that change entails never ever speaking again, there's still kind of a relationship energetically, simply in the fact that you know that this person exists and that they know you exist. So calling it an ending feels inaccurate. But we'll go with that terminology just to keep it simple for now. But what I want to say is that the end of a relationship, to some extent, is the death of a dream. It's the dream that out there somewhere, there will be a person or persons who make me feel less alone. I'm going to build a life with them, we're going to live together, we're going to have kids together, or we'll spend every Sunday together eating ice cream on the beach, or we'll have a little cottage in the wood together, or we'll see each other over holidays, or this will be my chosen family, or whatever the dream is, the dream is togetherness. The dream is alleviating the awareness that I am so alone, that in this body... Nobody else can really have full access to my experience of life, to the way that I see colors, to the way that I breathe, and that I'm constantly trying to reach out and tell others who I am and how I am, and that I constantly hope to be received and embraced and share my experience. This is such a fundamental human longing is to share who we are and our experience and to be met and to be seen. And it's the death of that dream, really, that is so painful in a breakup. It's also, if we get broken up with, or even if we end a relationship because it wasn't working, we very often feel one of two things. One is, this person did not see me for who I am. I tried and I tried and I did everything I could they ended up not knowing who I was and because I felt unseen I ended the relationship or because they did not see me and thus did not fully know who I was and appreciate how cool and wonderful I am they ended the relationship so I am fundamentally unseen or we feel the other way around this person did see me this person actually knows me this person knows my triggers my joys my sadnesses and yet, they left me, which must mean they noticed how much I suck. Like, my suckiness is sticking out. And I think often we feel a combination of the two things, really unseen and at the same time terrified that we were seen, weighed, and found wanting. Either way, whatever experience of those, whatever combination of those experiences we're having in our heartbreak, it comes down to the same thing. I am alone. And tell me if this is true for you as well, but like this has been a theme for me that I've become increasingly aware of and that I have repeatedly mentioned on this podcast. But every time my heart aches, every time I feel a longing, every time I feel disappointment, every time hope is shattered and I visit that experience and I try and find out what it is that hurts comes back to this very same thing. I am alone. 
And I don't want to make this too spiritual, but really this is just like, this is where I'm at right now. This is the experience I'm having. The experience I'm having is that more and more I realize that this is really, like the, it's like the fundamental ache of being a human, this realization that we are not unified with everything. We see beauty and we want to be unified with it. We see aliveness and we want to be unified with it. And we are not. We are separate. It's the pain of separation. And it is the death of hope. And I think nothing hurts quite as much as the death of hope. So yeah, I think, I think when we investigate heartbreak, there are different layers to it, right? There's the layer of simply missing that person, the way that they are, the way that they laugh, the way that they move, the way that they hold their body, the way that they move their head to the side when they're paying attention, the way that they cut onions, their body language, what makes them laugh, what doesn't make them laugh, all those beautiful things. We miss that because we love that and we want to get to witness that. And that there's a purity in that. That feels like a really pure feeling, you know. I think that's simply what it is to love people, is to love the way they look when they sleep and love the face they make when they're embarrassed or whatever the case might be. And to feel the warmth of that really. And the interesting thing is, although that hurts when we no longer get to witness that, when we no longer get to be around that, it also feels really joyful because you still get to think of that. You still get to know that that person exists in the world and that you still get to love them. And loving, this is like, this is something I've been pondering for a while and that just came to me one day when I was walking last year. I was walking and I felt really triggered and all sorts of things were coming up and then and then it was like the universe, like this, this, this sudden question entered my mind and the question was, can I let my love for this person, this person that I was interacting with in my mind and feeling triggered by, can I let my love for the person nourish me? They don't have to nourish me. They don't have to love me back. Me loving them is nourishment to me. Does that make sense at all? It's like love in itself, enjoying a person's mannerisms, enjoying the way their brain works, enjoying the way that they see the world, which is different from how I see the world, but also the same. That feels like a vast fire within me, like a vast yet cozy fire within me that can keep me warm. I don't even need them to love me back because the love I feel for them is detached from what they can do back for me. It's just simply, it's a form of nourishment. It's a source of nourishment. And it's the same love that I can feel towards myself. There's the pain of missing someone, the pain of loving them and not being able to witness them anymore when we break up. And that pain, as I said, feels really pure and somehow also really nourishing and also really powerful because it's a sort of a, an existential feeling. It, it brings you in touch with your deep longing to witness others and your deep inherent love of others. And then on top of that, laid on top of that, are the other things that are often more painful. Like I said, the rejection, abandonment, 
the fear of being alone and the loss of hope. And I think those are the other side of heartbreak. And I think that the death of hope is a really powerful place to be in. A few years ago, I read this book by Pema Chodron, When Things Fall Apart, it's called. And she had an entire chapter in there called Death and Hopelessness, <laughs> which really appealed to me. I love, I love me a good title. And um, she contends that almost the first necessary step in growth and in moving towards a life that is free of suffering is to give up hope. And that might sound initially really weird, like where there's hope, there's life, says the quote. But that, what she wrote there just spoke to me immediately. Because hope implies being dissatisfied with how things are now and wanting them to change and hoping that they will change. Hope means not accepting what is, right? And in that sense, it's the same thing as fear. I fear spiders and I hope no spiders will ever walk over me. That's a bad example. Spiders are on my mind a lot these days. Like it's like as long as we think that things will change, what it really means is that we can't be here. We can't be in this experience. We can't accept this experience. Hope fundamentally means not accepting what is now. You're hoping it'll change. You're hoping it'll improve. You're hoping at some point there'll be light at the end of this tunnel. So you're not really having this experience of the tunnel because you're kind of looking forward to when it'll be over. And then you can't receive the gifts of the tunnel either. I'm going to read you a little bit of what she wrote about hope. And I quote, If we're willing to give up hope that insecurity and pain can be exterminated, then we can have the courage to relax with the groundlessness of our situation. And that is the first step on the path. Hopelessness means that we no longer have the spirit for holding our trip together. We may still want to hold our trip together. We long to have some reliable, comfortable ground under our feet, but we've tried a thousand ways to hide and a thousand ways to tie up all the loose ends and the ground just keeps moving under us. Hope and fear come from feeling that we lack something. They come from a sense of poverty. We can't simply relax with ourselves. We hold on to hope and hope robs us of the present moment. We feel that someone else knows what's going on, but that there's something missing in us and therefore something is lacking in our world. Rather than letting our negativity get the better of us, we can acknowledge that right now we feel like a piece of shit and not be squeamish about taking a good look. That's the compassionate thing to do. That's the brave thing to do. We could smell that piece of shit. We could feel it. What is its texture, color, and shape? We can explore the nature of that piece of shit. We can know the nature of dislike, shame, and embarrassment, and not believe there's something wrong with that. We can drop the fundamental hope that there is a better me who one day will emerge. We can't just jump over ourselves as if we were not there. It's better to take a straight look at all our hopes and fears. Then some kind of confidence in our basic sanity arises. Giving up hope is encouragement to stick with yourself, to make friends with yourself, 
to not run away from yourself, to return to the bare bones, no matter what's going on. If we totally experience hopelessness, giving up all hope of alternatives to the present moment, we can have a joyful relationship with our lives, an honest, direct relationship, one that no longer ignores the reality of impermanence and death. End quote. <laughs> that was a long bit, but isn't it just fucking powerful? And it sort of messes with our minds a bit because we've been taught, you know, just, just keep on hoping, it'll get better, it gets better. And in some situations, I think that is a very helpful mantra. Just keep chanting, it gets better, it gets better. Sometimes that does get us through the moment. So I'm not, I'm not trying to rain on that parade. But recently, in my case, the death of hope has been a really, really fruitful experience. And I've spoken about that to some extent. What happened last year, when, this, when I saw, started sort of smelling in the air that this relationship was ending, or at least that a significant part of it was ending, when I felt the death coming, and I went through this intense, intense grief. And it was also grief attached to other things, my job ending, my life ending, all of those were part of the heartbreak, but this was perhaps the biggest part. And I think the agony extended for longer than it needed to because I was hoping that I was wrong. I was hoping that I could turn this around, that I could find a way to not be triggered, that I could find a way to outmaneuver this death, this impending death, that I could find a way to negotiate this relationship back into onto safer ground. And so hope lingered longer than it could have. But then when it went, when hope died, and I actually don't want to say it died because hope is really tenacious <laughs> and I'm a human being. It'll come back. <laughs> and it sneaks back in in all sorts of ways. But when hope mostly died, the thing that entered in its place was connectedness. Out of the mess of that grief, out of that compost heap, you know. And I didn't, go, that's the thing is, I didn't go looking for it. I didn't go, okay, I'm going to grab at any straws I can find. I'm going to look for meaning elsewhere. But what just started happening is I would lie in my bathroom floor weeping and then there would be this, this, <laughs> this connectedness. There was just sort of a, a vast consciousness welcoming me, saying, here you are, here you are. And I started being able to access that more and more. And it didn't really feel like a consciousness outside of myself, but rather the consciousness that runs through me and everything else. Like I said about the forest earlier, the coherent intelligence that is in everything, the soul that is in everything. It felt like that soul was welcoming me and saying, well, here you are. Because when you're grieving an end, an ending, first of all, you're having an experience that you share with every person on this planet. And that in itself is really powerful. You're tapping into some sort of deep archetype there. You're tapping into like a, a collective experience. And that in itself is extremely powerful and is not alone 
but also you're being so present. We can do whatever we want to distract us from the agony of, of heartbreak, but nothing can distract us for very long. And then when we finally surrender and be in the agony, we are in the moment as we very rarely are. I, I don't quite know how to explain what happens when one is fully present to the moment, but I'm sure you've experienced it yourself. There is a sort of a, there is an aliveness there. You're like, oh, wow, I'm really having this experience. It's like an adrenaline rush, even if there are no fucking roller coasters or bungee jumping involved. It's like, oh, I'm so alive. I'm grieving so fucking hard right now. This feels so good. And then that moment comes to you. That moment rises up and embraces you and says, well, here you are. Doesn't it feel great? Doesn't it feel great to be alive? Doesn't it fucking suck? It's good, eh? It's so good it hurts. So bad it's good. And anyway, I, I feel like I started hearing, and I say hearing in air quotes because I'm not actually hearing it, but like sort of hearing this consciousness more and more and also realizing that I've been in conversation with the universe my entire life. I used to call it praying. I used to call it talking to God. And now I don't quite know what to call it. But there is this constant two-way conversation that is happening. And as I've started worrying less and less about what to call it, the easier this conversation has become. And also as I've started, and I wouldn't say I'm good at this yet, but as I've started accepting every experience for what it is, being with the experience that is, the more I can hear the consciousness of everything saying, well, hi. And so there was a shift for me that started at the end of last year and that's been continuing, and that is moving from hope to trust. And it has a completely different texture and a completely different energy. Hope is an avoidance of this moment. Trust is an embrace of it. It is trusting that this too is perfect. And then from that place, it's like things come together. Like you start having in-jokes with, <laughs> with the universe. Oh my God, I sound like a fucking spiritual nut. I might be a spiritual nut. I honestly might be. Anyway, so what's been really happening for me this year has there, is there have been all these beautiful little moments of connection. It's as if the moment I abandoned the hope of not being alone, the moment I truly embraced the fact that I am alone, I am separate, I live in this fucking body, I'm not one with everything, Paradoxically, the moment I really felt that and grieved that and was in that, it became both true and not true because I also realized how deeply connected I am to everything. How everything is just making this beautiful, discordant, stunning chorus of aliveness and I'm such a fundamental part of it. I'm interwoven with everything and spending time in nature has really has really brought that home for me. Sitting outside on my stoop, looking at the birds, downloading a birding app and recording all the birds that I hear and trying to figure out which ones they are and looking at the leaves around me and just feeling this deep abiding interest in 
how this ecosystem is put together and feeling it welcoming me, feeling it welcoming my curiosity, feeling life open to my curious heart and sort of bring me into its folds, you know, has been has been so nourishing that it's almost like I don't have to hope anymore to not be alone one day because I'm not alone now. I'm so part of this teeming universe, but also I'm with me. And I think very often we hope that somebody else will find us and will love us and will see us because we don't. We have abandoned ourselves and we don't yet have a full capacity to know ourselves and see ourselves and accept ourselves. And that's okay. I don't think we need, I don't think we need to be too hard on ourselves for being where we are. And I also don't think we need, we can only enter into a relationship when we're healed, whatever the fuck that means. But I think the more that we expand in our ability to, to hold our own broken hearts, the less we hope that somebody else will. And we still want companionship and we still want community and we still want love in all its forms, of course. But it is right here. It's right here. <laughs> this is the thing that's been happening for me all the time is it's right here. I spent the past two weeks babysitting an eight month, 18-month-old little girl, a truly adorable and engaged little girl. And in one sense, it's really tedious because she, you know, she wants to throw rocks for half an hour and then scratch at tree bark with a stick and then wave at the chickens and then we go for a little walk and she picks up stones and then we play with the coloring books and all of it, you know, your 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 mind says, oh, this is boring. But she's so present that after a few days of babysitting her, I just realized that I was feeling such a well of joy inside me and I couldn't figure out what it was at first and then I I realized it's because I'm constantly present I'm with this little girl I'm running to catch her if it looks like she's gonna fall I'm interested in the world around me because she is I'm engaging with my environment and who knew that a simple thing like noticing the things around you would be so amazing I know, it's what all the meditation teachers always say. I've never felt it to the extent that I've felt it the past while. And it's like, I was only able to notice the things around me when I gave up the hope that somebody would come and rescue me away from this, from this life. When I gave up hope that things would change, I started looking at the things. So instead of rushing to get out of the tunnel, I pause and look at the graffiti on the walls of this tunnel. And it's fucking cool graffiti. Anyway, all of that connectedness and also that sense of trust, that sense of trust that this moment is right because it is and therefore it must be right, <laughs> that sense of, of there being aliveness to every experience and especially that sense of deep belonging to everything around me and I think that's really what it is. There's like a sense, an increasing sense for me, an excitement almost in feeling like I belong. I belong to life. I belong to the forest. I belong to my body. I belong with everything. I belong in this moment. There's nothing wrong with me and there's nothing wrong with this moment. Oh, it makes me so excited to just say that. 
Anyway, all of that increasing, what really comes down to trust, was highlighted for me two days ago when I went through a breakup. (laughs) And I hesitate to call it a breakup, but let's go with that for now. I can't really tell you much about it. It was an unexpected friendship that turned into something else unexpectedly or that that went that became chemistry and romantic interest suddenly unexpectedly and then there were complications and it ended and it was painful it was especially painful because the friendship had to end too and can you hear those mice I don't know if the microphone picked that up, but I really hope it did. They're squeaking really loudly. I can't see them. They this, this time it sounded like it was coming from the roof. Anyway, for many reasons, this this friendship had to end. And I didn't feel devastated. I still don't. I feel sad, but I feel good about how the whole thing played out in the sense that Neither me nor this other person, I think, were ever out of alignment. We were always true to ourselves. We were in our integrity. And there was beauty there. And the parting was beautiful too and filled with love. And so there, was not, there wasn't a sense of regretting our interactions. And also there wasn't hope for me. Hope that this could somehow change. Right from the start, right from the start of our interactions, I suspected that Things might be really difficult, that there might be logistical issues and other issues, other things that would complicate this. And over and over I felt this trust. However this turns out is right. And not necessarily because I'm going to learn a lesson, not, not necessarily because this will enrich my life over the long run and having met this person is going to make me a better person. None of that. And that's, I think, what we want to do when we have a relationship that ends or a disappointment. We want to tell ourselves, well, everything will be all right in the end. And if it's not all right, it's not the end. And ooh, this will serve to make me stronger. And ooh, this is going to teach me some beautiful lesson and then I'll be better for it. And those things might be true or they might not. But the thing is, maybe the value of the experience lies simply in the experience itself, in having met someone, in having seen them, in having had one more person in our field of experience that we had the chance to witness and love. Maybe that's enough. Loving in itself is worthwhile. It doesn't have to become part of a story, of a coherent story. And maybe, paradoxically, the lesson is that there is no lesson. Maybe the story is that there is no beginning and end. It's just a mass of beautiful interconnectedness and Part of that interconnectedness is sometimes deaths. Anyway, so I was sitting with this two nights ago and feeling the finality of this end, feeling my sense of trust immediately come up, knowing that this was right, knowing that this was true, and knowing that this was okay, and also knowing that it, feeling how it hurt, feeling their pain as well. And then I looked up. And there was a massive rain spider up on the wall. And at this point, I need to pause and tell you my story with spiders. 
So I have been terrified of spiders as long as I can remember. I had a bad experience with a spider when I was a child. It got stuck in my clothes and ran all over my body and the fear just got compounded. And I, I mean, I've never been diagnosed, but I would call it a phobia because it actually affects the quality of my life. I always think of spiders. If I sit on the grass, I sit on the grass in spite of the fact that there are spiders. If I walk through the forest, I have to steal myself beforehand because I know that I'm be walking through cobwebs and and that is like a fear I have to live with. And always in my body is this terror that a spider will run over me, that I'll feel its little legs and that weird sort of scrambling motion it has and that it'll touch my skin and it's the way that a spider moves that scares me it's not I'm not scared of being bitten I'm not scared of spiders being poisonous Uh, it's the movement that ooh, I just I can just feel like the the shiver going down my spine so rain spiders also known as huntsman spiders are the biggest spiders we have in South Africa. We have some tarantulas that are same sized, but we don't see them very often, whereas rain spiders are very common. And they come into our houses when it rains to eat lizards and geckos. Um, so imagine a spider large enough to eat a lizard. And they're hairy and stripy, and I mean, you've probably seen them before. And when I arrived at this cottage, I took one look at this cottage and I was like, This is the place that rain spiders love. It doesn't seal very well. There are lots of little openings for it to come in and get out. It's a loft. It's open plan with a loft. So there are lots of little nooks and crannies. And uh, the beams of the ceiling are exposed. Lots of places for it to hide under. Very high ceiling. So when I do see a rain spider, I'm not going to be able to do anything about it. For the most part, in many places, because it's going to be way too high for me to catch or kill. And then there's also the issue that I don't want to kill a spider. I, in fact, I don't think I can kill a spider anymore. It's, I've just The thing is that I've been terrified of them for so long that I've started doing research about spiders. And I know now know lots of things about them. How they live, how they interact, how they hunt all the wonderful things that they do with their silk. And in the process, I've really started loving them and respecting these creatures, these beautiful, interesting creatures. But I am also terrified, and it's an involuntary terror. It feels like I have no control over how fucking terrified I am of spiders. And that fear coheres in my fear of rain spiders because that's just the the gambly lopsided run they have and those long legs and the hair and and the the, oh and the size and I I anyway so when I came to this this cottage I've seen many many spiders since being here and every time I shoo them out the door or I sort of dodge them if it's in the forest and try and still my heartbeat. But they've been smaller spiders every time, or like medium-sized spiders. And it's been hard, but it's been fine. And I kept talking to the universe about this and saying, I'm not ready. I don't feel ready to see a bigger spider. I'm not, I don't feel ready to see a rain spider. And I am terrified of a rain spider running over me in my sleep while I'm in bed or climbing into bed, and then a rain spider runs out my blankets. Please, universe, don't let this happen to me. And the answer that comes up 
over and over again is, it won't happen until I'm ready. (laughs) So not it won't happen, but it won't happen until I'm ready. So I don't have to be afraid because by the time that I see a spider, a rain spider in my house, it will mean I'm ready to see it. And by the time a rain spider runs across my body, I'll be ready for that to happen. Which is cold comfort, but comfort nonetheless. And there is something so naked and vulnerable and beautiful about being so fucking afraid and being so brought brought low by it. Like, I can say the most beautiful things I want about being one with the world and being connected to everything, but my body, my body's response when I see a spider brings me back to the humbling awareness that I am not the boss of my responses, <laughs> at least not always. I am not the boss of my fears and I am not some fucking goddess who has overcome all her fears. And also... Fear is such a beautiful teacher, one, because it's so humbling, but also because it really, really brings you into the present fucking moment. Like, you are alive. Your every sense is wide awake. The adrenaline is coursing through you. You are engaged with what is around you when you're that terrified. So there I was sitting, also had a little fire, it was raining outside, in pain with this heartbreak, and being with it as best I could and, and feeling this vast, vast sense of trust and feeling fine, like sad but fine. And I looked up and there was this huge fucking rain spider up on the wall, not too far from my bed. And I was tired and it was cold and my heart ached and I just burst into tears. And I was like, so I started this conversation with the spider. I was like, spider, I don't know what to do. Like, I see you, and I know that you get to be here, and I know that you have a gentle soul. Rain spiders really have gentle souls. You can feel it. But, like, I can't handle this right now. I I can't. I don't have the reserves. I don't know what to do. I don't know. There's no one I can call. I don't even have a glass jar that I can catch you in, but I wouldn't even be able to use the jar if I could because I I can't bring myself to come close enough to you to catch you in a jar because if I missed you'd run across my arm or across my entire body. So I'm standing there having this dialogue with the spider saying, I don't want to kill you, but I don't know what else to do. Like, but I can't kill you. I, I don't, I can't, I, like there's a physical resistance when I try and kill like a, a, a spider. Anyway, then I have a pep talk with myself and I tell myself, stop thinking you're better than everything else. You eat meat. You can kill a spider. What's the difference? So I climb up into the loft where the spider is perched with the mop <laughs> and I decide I'm going to kill the spider and I, I look at the spider again and I burst into tears again and then I come closer and as I'm, as I'm doing this I'm talking to the spider saying I don't want to kill you, I don't want to kill you and I remember what came to me that, that life said to me I won't have to face a spider until I'm ready which must mean that I'm ready but I don't feel ready. I'm, terror is coursing through my body. I can't possibly go to bed tonight with this big thing in my house. Like, I'm never going to fall asleep. And I jerk them up, and the spider sees the movement and runs away. And I scream. Oh, I shouted, oh, yeah. 
which is the Afrikaans for God. And I don't know if I was praying or swearing, both, I think. And the spider ran and hid in the rafters, and I felt such relief that I hadn't killed it. And I came back down from the loft, sat down on my bed, and burst into tears and just sat there sobbing because I'm so naked and vulnerable with this huge fear and the spider is still in the house and like it's an open plan there's no door I can shut to keep it out it's gonna run over me in my sleep I just absolutely know it I'm never gonna sleep again I don't know what to do and I'm supposed to be ready for this moment but I'm not fucking ready I'm not ready and you know I was ready like eventually I calmed down and I I moved my bed away from the wall to at least limit the danger of the spider running across me as it runs across the wall. So now my bed is marooned in the middle of the room like an island. And I downloaded a podcast about, like a hypnosis podcast episode about how to get rid of your fear of spiders, which turned out not to be very good, but I listened to it anyway. I spoke to some people and told them I'm terrified and then I got into bed and fell asleep. And woke up in the middle of the night and went to the toilet whilst flashing my light against every wall to see if the spider was there and I didn't see it again. And I came back to bed and I lay there and imagined the spider running over the walls and lay there feeling small and defenseless, even though the spider is so much smaller than I am. And once more I burst into tears and I cried because I'm sad because I just lost someone that I really cared about and my heart hurts and I want things to be easy and they're not easy and there's a spider in my house and I've been through 14 breakups in my life 14 significant breakups there have been more but like those are the big ones and I just want to be cozy and cherished and comfortable and I'm lying in this fucking cold cottage with my snoring dog and a spider somewhere and I don't know where it is and it's probably in the blankets with me and everything is so beautiful. Like, this experience is so yummy. (laughs) I don't even know how to explain what I'm trying to say. But there was just like, it was just like in that moment... I realized I am okay. I'm sad and the spider and this vulnerability I felt by encountering the spider just helped bring me in contact with my own constant innate vulnerability and my own nakedness in life and my own fears that I haven't magically overcome or risen above and how alive I am in this experience and how gentle life is being with me and like I don't know how to make this a coherent story because experiences rarely are coherent, but it felt like the universe was like just poking me gently and saying, you see, it's, it's, this, is, this is what you signed up for. You like this. Even the, the, the hard bits, especially the hard bits, this loss, this longing, this fear, this phobia and the vulnerability it's bringing you in contact with. This is fine. Being ready for that spider, being being ready didn't doesn't mean that I would be able to meet the moment with 
magnanimous calm. It just meant that I can be with this too. I can be with this fear too. It doesn't mean, oh, I'm brave enough to face the spider now. It means that I am present enough to be with the fact that I'm not brave enough. You know, does that make sense? And the same goes for heartbreak. It doesn't mean my heart doesn't hurt anymore. It just means that I have, I'm, I feel connected enough to life itself and to myself to see the gift of this heartbreak too. And so I think if we're lucky and if we do heartbreak with as much presence as we can muster, if we really go into that darkness, the darkness that heartbreak brings up for us, if we really grieve that aloneness that heartbreak brings up for us, that rejection, that fear of forever being alone, the death of that dream, the death of that hope, if we really grieve it, that grief becomes so fertile. And I think that is the gift of heartbreak. And seeing the spider for me was like a little nudge from the universe saying, you saw the spider because you are able to handle it. And in the same way, you are able to handle this experience. And by handle, I mean show up for it fully and love it. I'm loving this experience. I'm loving this experience of being in a forest and being confronted with my own vulnerability. And I'm loving this experience of loving people and missing them because I can't be with them. And yet being so grateful for the experience of the love itself. Even if I can't express it in the way that I want to, just the gift of being able to love people is enough. So when our hearts break, let them break open into the beauty and the privilege that we have for loving. I mean, what is more worth our while than just being able to show up and witness people, even if they don't want to witness us back? Regardless of that, it's like it has nothing to do with it. That's it. That's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. And I'll talk to you soon.